Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, a conversation about care and compassion with Co-Muse CEO, LJ Malberg. Co-Muse is a mindful business platform that creates and supports workplace culture and equity and communication and productivity strategy for the global music and tech community. As CEO, LJ Malberg provides business coaching, builds mindful communities, and delivers masterclasses, mindfulness sessions, and support resources to cultivate a more inclusive, empathetic, and integrated workplace, all founded on the philosophy and science that caring and human-first initiatives maximizes the welfare of the individual and the bottom line. LJ hails from the Bay Area, where she spent her adolescence dancing in the San Francisco Ballet Academy and spent the last two decades in New York City, Ticketmaster, Indiegogo, Eventbrite, and finally Co-Muse before decamping early pandemic to Athens, Ohio. Ours was a wide-ranging, personal, and ultimately universal discussion during which we went deep quickly and discussed compassion, grace, mindfulness, finding connection, getting uncomfortable, and letting go. Compassionate Muse is my alias and also the name of my company. It evolved into something more. It turned into a community mm. where we are each other's muses and we co-inspire each other to show up and work from a place of compassion and practice our emotional intelligence skills in situations where conversations could be really heard. Mm. And we practice some safe spaces so that we can go out into the world and do our creative work with confidence, knowing that we can create win-wins instead of ordinarily coming out of situations where someone feels, and in most cases, people pleasers, which is the majority of our community, feel like they've sacrificed, sacrificed themselves. How did you come to the alias in doing this work, executive coaching and organizational culture design for music and tech, more and more and more people were coming out of the woodwork and saying, how do I do this? So it was a problem that I had to solve, which was how do I get in front of more people at one time and serve what I love to serve, in, which is I'm totally obsessed with compassion and the practical applications of compassion. People need a lot of help. I've needed a lot of help. And this was an opportunity to practice with lots of people together. Will you unpack compassion for me and then talk about how, how the work would manifest around compassion and grace in the real world day to day? whether it's in an organization or one-on-one -on -one with an executive coaching client, the medium of practicing self-compassion is huge, huge, 
can't practice compassion out in the world unless you're prepared to practice self-compassion at the same time because you're you're giving on empty mm. something missing that way so the medium the application is the same kindness human connection really the very first step is just mindful self-awareness and we do a lot of work on mindfulness not just mindfulness meditation but practicing self-awareness in our day-to-day those conversations are they're powerful stuff because when we are mindful in the moment we are open to learning what's new in the moment rather than come approaching a situation with being all knowing we have to know we need the answer going in we go into a situation with it's okay not knowing it's okay to be open and to ask open ended questions so we practice that a lot and also honoring what our needs are what we think we need how we ask for what we need how we ask for what we need in a way that still lets the other person know that they're a human in the room and uh, we're not out to attack anybody we're out to attempt to communicate our needs compassionately and see if there's a win-win on the other side of it let's do it together instead of me versus you it's a reframing and it's hard it is hard shit and i love it <laughs> <laughs> we talk about kindness in culture to some degree but that generally speaking these are not capabilities that most of us are raised to possess or if so it's almost like lip service but not very well modeled broadly speaking in culture but specifically speaking in the workplace and moreover in the work world where i think anxiety is so high around well, am I even going to keep this job? Whether you're an executive or a, you know, a worker bee, it's a little cutthroat, a lot of fear. Does that sound resonant? A million percent. So I'm going on 30 years in music and entertainment. In all of my years, coming up as a woman in a predominantly still run male world of music and entertainment, in my early days, it was so challenging navigating the fear because there was immediate backlash and feedback, unwanted feedback often, from my male counterparts in the industry that I had to navigate on top of just doing work that was really, really hard mm -hmm. and competitive. Mm -hmm. So that extra layer of information that provoked a lot of fear instilled a lot of fear in me one of the reasons i'm lj is because i had to play a trick on people <laughs> early on uh. to get them to get back to me so i was a jazz singer and a dancer and then i got into representing bands and dancers and became an agent and very early on in my agency career I knew I had great acts. I had a, an amazing roster. This is in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 90s, late 90s. I was just doing doing the best that I could and working working my tail off. And no one would get back to me. You know, finally I did this A/B testing trick where 
I would email the same people and my email was LJ and my signature was LJ and they would always get back to me and I would confirm my, my bands, I would confirm my acts. And then when I advanced the show and finally got them on the phone, oh, I, I didn't know you were a woman. You're so professional. Ugh. You know, the little microaggressions that were more like macroaggressions, yeah. you know, just smacks in the face. And, you know, and, and there are so many stories uh, like that, that I personally have experienced, but there's so many stories that everyone in this business has for one reason or another. And it's just a reminder to me that everyone is struggling. Everyone is struggling with something. And the sooner we go into conversations realizing that, the easier the conversations are to have because we have common ground. Even if we have nothing else in common other than we're all suffering and we're human. Yeah. And we all want to be successful. We all want to be successful in the way that we define it. Even if we have nothing else in common, there's the level playing field. And so in that, I hung my hat and things got easier. Not in the industry, certainly not in the industry, but they got easier for me because I was able to find my resilience that way and uh, navigate some tricky waters that way. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful that an old boyfriend of mine, when I was 24, took me to hear Ajahn Amaro, a Buddhist monk, speak. And that really turned me on to Buddhism at a very early age. I've sort of tried to figure out how to interweave that into everything that I do, that that sense of mindfulness, the fact that everyone is suffering, and the ability to let shit go that is not serving me well. As much as I want to hang on to it and tell that story in my head again and again and again, it's not helping me move forward. I'm so grateful. It's super, super fortuitous. It's changed my life. The house I grew up in was rife with uncertainty and dysregulation, a lot of anger. I was bullied and made to feel small because like, that's what happens to guys who sing in high school. <laughs> my jaw was broken when I was 16. So I lost a lot of faith in the world and a lot of confidence and a sense of safety, right? And I've girded and sort of steeled myself and numb myself ever since, right? Anticipating the next sucker punch. So I was really trying to get at letting go. What's, <laughs> what's, the, what's the trick, sister? You know, like more meditation? Thank you so much for sharing that. First off, you don't have to let go of the things that happen to you. They happen to you and they're a part of who you are. They are the reason you are who you are today. I have only known you a very short period of time, but what I know so far is that you are a beautiful human and you want to do beautiful things in the world. Yeah. And you are doing beautiful things in the world. And so what's happened to you has given you the strength. And in Yiddish, we'd say chutzpah. Yeah to show up now and do this new chapter beautifully. What I separate out is the human from the behavior. And that is how I forgive people. 
Mm. And it's how I forgive myself. Most importantly, (laughs) most people in the world are good natured from the inside out, but we are all products of our environments and we make choices based on our environments, right? So your environment back then was a certain way. And because of that, certain things played out the way that they did. And some people would would argue with me that this is uh, naive, but it for me it works, which is giving people the benefit of the doubt that they were doing the best that they could do in that moment with what mm-hmm. they had. Not a lot of people have compassion tools in their in their tool belt, and so I think the way to make peace with the past and to let go of the elements that aren't serving you well is to separate out the people from their behaviors. The people are good. The behaviors maybe weren't great at the time or maybe even terrible. Separate them out. Accept that what happened happened and that there's no can't go into the past. There's nothing you can do to control it. But right now, the question is, what is something new that you can learn in all of these things that have happened that you would like to bring into your future? That's a coaching question. And I find it to be a powerful question because it immediately puts you in the control seat. What is something new that you can learn in all of this that's already happened? Rather than staying in the story, look at it through new lenses. What is something new here that I would like to bring into my future? And that can be um, very creative. That can be a very creative process. And quite frankly, it can look like anything you like because you get to decide what that is for you. So when you were 24, you kind of woke up to a different worldview. Once I woke up to this sort of impact of trauma and then the coping mechanisms we all employ in our lives, all I can see is the ghost of trauma on everybody's mm-hmm. back. And most people seem wholly uninterested or willing to talk about it or address it. And it makes me insane. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of zombies just plodding through their lives because it's too difficult to have this kind of like conversation where I feel like my heart's kind of open and my stomach's kind of open and I'm a little uncomfortable, but I'm pretty sure at the end of it, I'll feel a little more understood and I will understand better. How do you think about those who are not interested in coming to the workshop or showing up for the, you know, one-to-one or group sessions with you in your community? I would be lying if I don't feel frustrated sometimes that I, I can't make a connection or get through takes two people. I made a deal with myself that I will partner with people who want to partner with me. Right. And I'm only going to I am only going to put in as much as. And there are some times where maybe I'll go a little bit more. But if we agree on a partnership, then we're partners. And I think what we miss out on a lot in communication and it doesn't matter if it's at work. It doesn't matter if it's in music 
or healthcare or government or at home with our family or whatever. What we miss out on is the opportunity to talk about accountability because that gives us an indication, a very clear indication of the level of willingness that someone is able to show up. And if they are not willing, then the timing is not right. Mm. It's just it's just bad timing. That's it. It's not a good fit right now. And that's okay. We you know, we're all on our different paths. Truly, I I have conversations with myself like you <laughs> often. Often. And I feel frustrated often because I'm only human. I want to do this thing and I think it's great. But, you know, that's just one person's opinion. It happens to be mine. <laughs> and I happen to be I happen to be married to it. But hey, if I'm practicing the art of letting go, mm-hmm. now's the time. Now's the time to let go. If this person doesn't want to show up with me, that's okay. Then I got to let it go. So it is a constant mirror shown back to me that it's time to practice the work. It doesn't happen as often as you would think. I know you said there's a bunch of zombies out there. And that's true in certain situations where people are feeling really uncomfortable. But if you can create spaces where people feel more comfortable or, you know, we, there's a trendy phrase now, safe spaces, and I use it too. But there is something to that, you know, psychological safety. There is something to that. Yeah. I'm not talking about coddling people. That is bullshit. <laughs> it doesn't help anybody. It's just an enabler for people to continue to live in their bubble and not grow. But if you can create safe spaces for people to feel uncomfortable knowing that they're going to be okay coming out on the other side, that's pretty cool. And I think, you know, many people will show up for that in the right situation. They'll show up for that. So yes, does it happen where, you know, I'll meet up with people and they're just not ready. It's not the right timing. We can't be partners right now. Yes, sure. Do I get frustrated or sad or bummed out? Yeah, I do. But again, this is part of the, it's all connected. Like this is the gift. This is the work that I get to do. I love this. And so, um, you know, I just remember my core values and why I do what I do. And I keep going. And that's part of your practice is like, literally, like I was going to say, a mantra or a meditation or kind of going back to some grounding self-talk. I am not a one-size-fits-all person. And so for that reason, I like giving people space to come up with lots of options for themselves. Yeah. You know, I think choice is very powerful, especially if it's coming from them, from, you know, from the source. For me, leaning on my core values, which I determined many years ago, has become my North Star. And when I make decisions from a place of my core values, I feel really good. And when I feel, when I'm making decisions from a place of fear, which is not one of my core values, um, (laughs) I get knots in my stomach. I get a sour stomach. My stomach does flips. My Mm. body will let me know I'm out of alignment. Boy, it sure does, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, we are animals. We do and can pay attention to that, but we often ignore it. We like to tell ourselves something else. 
it didn't even occur to me for the longest time that it was relevant. You know, like, I mean, it just didn't even occur to me that, that it was a signal. The last uh, 10 years in New York were just brutal. You know, when I climbed from web producer to senior vice president and then went to Facebook and then like was shit I did at Facebook was on the front page of the times and then in the elections. And then I started traveling the planet, you know, like, and then little wonder I would be like, why do I feel like I'm going to throw up all the time? What did you think it was when your stomach, when you were nauseous all the time? I didn't even occur to me that it was a stress response. It's in the beginning of the movie. I went to doctors for each one of these things, heart arrhythmia, chest pain, eye twitch. I could go on uh, patches in my beard every time they'd say, wow. are you under stress? And I was like, yes, you know, like <laughs> I live in New York city. I work in the news business. I'm traveling the planet. I have two kids, you know, like $8,000 rent, you know, it, it just, I just didn't even know uh, that there was something I could do. I think I'm at this point in my life where it's such a wake up that I want to like shake people and be like, wake up, which is part of what I was getting at with my question to you. Like, I know that's not useful because people are going to wake up if, and when they're ready to wake up, tell you what, it didn't occur to me to breathe. And nobody said, you know, this is what a breath is and why you need to do it right. And so now at least I have some tools. Um, thank goodness. Love, love that. Oh thank my gosh. Goodness. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of these tools are, are simple. But it's the space just before you use the tool mm. when you go, I need to use the tool. That, that moment, that's the mindful self-awareness that we work on. Mm -hmm. It is the waking up. It's the... The noticing. Oh, it's the noticing. It's the awareness. There's so much juicy information in it. And it's coming from it within. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, we're so quick to ignore it because we're busy. Yeah. Because we're competing. Because we are surviving. I was too scared too often. And I think I probably have always carried a fair dose of not enoughness. And so in that space, and I love that you point that out, in that space, I think the voice, instead of a voice of compassion or forgiveness, it was a voice of, you know, what's wrong with you? There wasn't any tenderness or softness or <laughs> compassion. <laughs> We're so quick to, to do that. That really resonates with me. I have kicked my own ass for way too many years. It hurts. It's sore. I'm done. I don't want to hurt myself anymore. Yeah. Especially yourself. Right. And then, yeah, I often say to my daughters, like the way that we talk to others is a reflection of how we talk to ourselves. And then you realize, oh shit, the way they talk to each other is largely modeled by me. And you know, the good news is at least I'm in front of it now, but that's, I don't think that self-talk was very um, compassionate. My hunch is most of ours isn't. This is another thing in which I am fully not alone. This is just a universal experience. I find that to be true in my own personal experience and in my work. That's the first place we go is to beat ourselves up. So we're not very nice to ourselves. You grew up in the Bay Area, right? Give me a sense of your earliest experiences and memories and sort of earliest creative dreams. My parents, who are both artists in their own right and creatives in their own right, were originally from New York. Uh, my dad is from the Bronx and my mom 
grew up in New Jersey and then later moved to Manhattan. And they met in San Francisco in the early 70s in a theater group. Oh, wow. So I was bo- literally born into the theater. Yeah. Neither one of them made a full-time living doing their art and their creative works, but always had the side hustle or some sort of project going on. And my younger brother and I, there's two of us, uh, we were encouraged from a very early age to dance, to play instruments. Actually, encouraged is not the right word. We were, <laughs> we were told to play instruments. Right. Yeah, that was mandatory. I got into singing pretty early. But I think I, before singing, I, w- I was dancing since I was three, wow. um, mostly ballet. I got into, <laughs> this is a very big deal as a small child, but I got into the San Francisco Ballet Academy. All I wanted to do was be a ballet dancer. I want, that is what I wanted. I knew it from the time I was three, I was going to be a ballet dancer. So I grew up dancing. And music was in the house all the time. My dad's a, a horn player, uh-huh. jazz trumpet player, a singer, played piano. My mom played a little dulcimer, a little guitar. And they both used to sing us to bed every night. Uh-huh. That sing us to sleep every night, bedtime songs. It was a really just a lovely way to grow up, even though we had practically no money. Mm. It was a very creative house. And we always figured out a way to express ourselves through art. Uh, My brother turned out to be an incredible artist, physical artist um, and animator. So he went the way of physical art. I went the way of performing arts and it just sort of went from there. And ballet is physically quite challenging, isn't it? I've actually started taking dance lessons with my wife because I never had, you know, like sometimes they teach a kid how to do the waltz as a teenager while well, I missed that. And as a 50 year old, I was like, dude, I should know how to do the waltz. Right. And I love it. And, and also it was a n- nice opportunity to spend time with my wife, but I am a klutz. I mean, it is really hard for me. I, I can move above the torso. You know what I mean? But my understanding is that's really rigorous stuff, right? That's really physically demanding ballet in particular. I mean, it's classical training. It's very rigid. Uh, it is very demanding. It's a very demanding rehearsal and training schedule. And if you want to perform, there are demands of your body, not just what it can do, but what it must look like in mm-hmm. order to do it. Right. Um, that ultimately I couldn't meet. And when I was 17, the best thing actually that ever happened to me was the Oakland Ballet at the time, which I was hoping to become uh, part of their corps de ballet because I was getting quite good and I was performing with them as a student up until that point. I tried diet pills and everything, my body shape. I was still very tiny, but I was built like a gymnast instead of a ballet dancer. And I was told that I probably would never become a professional ballet dancer at 17. And that was a pivotal moment for me. We talk about p- yeah. epiphanies. Yeah. That was a gift in disguise epiphany for me. At the time, it felt like my world ended, but really, it was devastating. But it opened up. I knew I had to dance because that was the way that I knew how to express myself. 
it cracked open the world of dance for me. And I, all of a sudden I tried jazz and I was doing African dance and I was hip hop and samba and salsa. And then ultimately, I'm so glad you mentioned waltz. I became a professional ballroom dancer. No, <laughs> And I did that for many, many years. Yes, I did. You'd be amazed at how bad I am. I'm sure you're not as bad as you say you are. What? Everyone said, that's the very first line I get on, a, on the first lesson of every private lesson or class I ever taught was I've got two left feet, but after a while they warm up and your, your left foot becomes your left foot and your right foot becomes your right foot. You just have to give it time. <laughs> you know, it's also so interesting in how, again, the culturally we just don't dance much singing and dancing in this sort of, again, sort of somatic expression of emotion isn't really the norm, right? We're actually kind of like this country of pilgrims that's like very rigid and right angled and like must not express emotions and dancing <laughs> such a beautiful way to be free with yourself. It's absolutely true. There is an element, a major element of mechanics that must be adopted into your muscle memory first. And once that's there, and that takes time and patience and patience and perseverance, like anything else when you're learning something new. But once that's there, what comes out of that is expression. And it is delightful. It's so delightful. It, can, it makes you feel like you can fly. Mm. And it really doesn't matter if you are born with two left feet or you're born with no feet, the ability to express yourself physically is there. I've seen all shapes and sizes and capabilities and disabilities do it. Yeah. And it is uh, it's a profound experience. I'm friends with a lot of creatives who had a very singular vision at a young age. You know, for me, it was, I'm going to be a rock star, right? there's a moment where that's just apparent that it's not going to happen. There was a slow sense of loss as I moved into this sort of corporate world. And you've certainly done your due diligence in the corporate world, right? There's Ticketmaster, Eventbrite, Indiegogo, mm -hmm. right? Like at this real intersection of those spaces. How did you deal with it in the moment? What was your self-talk or what sort of, what did, how did your community, your family rally around that sense of disappointment? Well, at the time that I got the news, I was starting to audition um, to be in dance programs for university. I would say that my ballet community, it wasn't like full stop, we parted ways, but it fizzled out mm. because my attention had to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And they were so laser focused on ballet. So my understanding of not being able to fully embrace that world as a professional allowed me to drift. I remember my parents being very supportive. I really liked jazz. I got into jazz pretty seriously for a hot minute, which led to, as I mentioned, lots of other styles. I ended up minoring in dance with a major in business administration. Uh -huh. <laughs> Because my dad, who was very smart and still very smart, said to me, you know, you've been going to school for dance your entire life. What would it look like to focus on something different? At the first, I was incredibly adamant. No, 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 no. It's all dance. It's all dance. But it was a really great point. And it allowed me to create 
this mesh of what you were starting to to talk about, which is, you know, the idea that creativity and capitalism, as much as they clash, can coexist. Mm. And that's been my mantra ever since through many iterations of all the hats that I've worn in this industry. I ended up also, this is also fortuitous, my dad's advice panned out really well because I ended up getting hurt during a ballroom dance performance with a student of mine in 2007, and it ended my dance career. Oh, no. So again, as heartbreaking and awful as that moment was, I had the foresight already to start an agency and representing other artists. It helped me segue my career nicely. Uh, And if it weren't for that step in my career, I wouldn't have been ready to take on Ticketmaster, which was a major part of my career. I worked for them for eight years. It was very intense. It was a pretty big job. I needed that foundation to support me in that chapter. So thank God. Yeah. I remember having all of those capitalist versus creativity conversations all the time with clients, with my cohorts, with my boss. I mean, it it was all the time. I lived in that intermeshed space. And man, you know, that's what really drove it home for me was like, when I arrived at Ticketmaster, it became so apparent that the the most challenging parts of the entertainment and music industries aren't the music and the entertainment. Mm. It's not the technology that we're building to support music and entertainment. No, the hardest, most challenging parts are the relationships that we have with each other and with ourselves, hands down. And at that point, I was already, I didn't know it at the time, but I was already starting to form Compassionate Muse. So you recently made a major transition geographically yourself. What unexpected challenges have you faced and how have you met those challenges? So at the beginning of the pandemic, I got a call from my friend and she said, the city's going to be shutting down all non-essential travel. And at the time... I was doing a long distance relationship thing with my then boyfriend. He was doing and is still doing some brilliant work for the media arts and studies school at Ohio University. I'm living in a box, essentially, in Astoria, Queens. And he's in a house in Athens, Ohio. Do we want to call it or should we get together? What do you want to do? And next thing I know, I'm running a car. And I've been here ever since. I was new here in Athens during a pandemic, so knew nobody and nobody was going out. So Mm -hmm. totally isolated, became engaged and then married all in one year. Seriously, one of the best things that ever happened to me Mm -hmm. because my second rodeo has been a gift. And the gift of the pandemic was we got to spend a lot of time getting to know each other a lot better. And it really was wonderful. My world grew quite big in the midst of the world getting much smaller. Mm-hmm. So that was all a blessing. What was not a blessing was I left my community in New York. That was really hard. Yeah. 
and I, I work from home. I, I designed my business to work remotely way, years before yeah. the pandemic hit. So that in itself can be very isolating because yeah. as much as I love the FaceTime, the exchange of energy is diluted by technology. And for sure. And yeah. you, you just don't feel it as much as you do in person. And yeah. I, I miss the hugs and the, yeah. 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 So, so that's been a challenge for me. And for that reason, you know, I've, I've something nuanced that's come up for me is I've had a bit of melancholiness, not the kind of melancholy that I get from feeling bummed out or, or even depressed about maybe my career not being at, at a place where I think it should be, or that I'm not adulting to the point where I should be all the shoulds, right? Yeah. Not that kind of sadness and, and depression. It's more, it's a missing, mm. a longing. I miss my friends. I miss my family. My family is on, in California. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, that part's tough. Yeah. What are you hearing from your community, all of your communities around this post COVID moment? you know, from a wellness standpoint. On the music side of things, everyone is looking to dive right back in, hoping that things are going to be exactly how they were before. But we all know that's not the case. It is different. People are different. We've been traumatized. And there is a layer and a level of anxiety that people are experiencing now, like this low-level buzz of anxiety that people are experiencing now that they didn't have before on top of any anxieties that they did have before. Mm-hmm. And gosh, this is a full circle moment because it, I think it really just goes back to grace. Mm. You know, um, that's the nuance that I'm hearing people talk about now. Well, we, we need to have grace and they may use different words. Like we need to practice self-care. We need to find work life balance. Mm. we tend to identify ourselves with our work, with what we do as who we are, Yeah, which I think can be a mistake sometimes. That's the work right there. Practicing separating out what we do for a living from who we are will help us balance. Mm-hmm. Because if, if the work changes or the work goes away or it's replaced by different work or whatever it is, we are still this, we are this, and the work is this. Mm-hmm. And this feeds this, mm-hmm. not the other way around. We invert them a lot. And I think that's a big mistake. How do you foster resilience in yourself and encourage it in others? Two things, gratitude and service. Mm. Those snap me out of it right away. You can't be afraid and be grateful at the same time. The brain doesn't work like that. So if you can focus on what you're grateful for, then in that moment, the fear will subside. It will go away. It goes, it goes away. It will come back. You can bank on it. But in that moment, if you're feeling grateful, it's a growth mindset practice, Mm -hmm. but it's also a compassion practice. Gratitude is a compassion practice because that gratitude energy will fill you up where fear, it 
depletes you. Mm. Notice your energy, you know, going back to energy. Gratitude fills you up. It, it, it really, um, it's an expander of energy. And who doesn't want that? Service, same thing. To be in service of someone else gets me out of my head, gets me out of my own way, and focusing on how I can show up for somebody else who might in that moment be struggling or suffering with something. Maybe more than I could ever know. The Friends and Neighbors Podcast is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. Not only does it help us to improve the show, but it also helps other people discover and join our neighborhood. Please visit friendsandneighborshow.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our newsletter. We promise not to spam you, but we will deliver fresh and meaningful news and information straight to your inbox every week. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Drop me an email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.